ease and joy and, and happiness. Right, for some, the holidays, or Christmas particularly, is, is a reminder that, that you know, maybe, maybe life with your family is difficult. Right? It's a reminder that, uh-oh, i got to go deal with the in-laws, or i got to go deal with the family um, tomorrow. Right? You know, we're all kind of dealing with, with some of these things uh, that are coming up. Um, maybe you're, you're, you're worried about um, you're going to have to go and, and confront some of your loved ones who are unsaved, and you are worried and, and, and you know, sad about that. Or, or maybe they're even hostile. Um, to the faith, and you know that kind of what you're walking into and what you're getting ready for. Maybe, maybe Christmas is difficult for some of us because we, we can't be with our loved ones tomorrow. Maybe they're, they're too far away, or it's too expensive um, to get to them. Or maybe for some of us, we can't be with some of our loved ones because maybe we have lost some of our loved ones this year. And Christmas, for these people, can be a particularly difficult time. Because this is the time when we look back. This is the time when we're supposed to be with family. And, and we can't do those things. Christmas can sometimes become not a time of comfort and joy and happiness, but a time of, of reminiscence and then a time of difficulty. So as I was, as I was praying through some of that and thinking through um, that and how some, we don't have Christmas songs for you know, people that are struggling. We don't have Christmas songs to talk about you know, difficulty sometimes. And so as, as I was working on this and thinking, I came upon um, Luke chapter 2 and kind of the, the overlooked underrated story um, of, of Anna, the prophetess, at the end of Luke chapter 2. Um, so that's the text I want to spend just a few minutes in um, this evening. Um, and, you know, it's part of the Christmas story, but we generally ignore it. It's in Luke 2, verses 36 through 38. And that is on page 857 in your pew Bibles, I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. So Luke 2, verses 36 um, through 38. I'm going I'm to read it for you. This is God's Word. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we thank you um, for, this, for this quiet, calm space to come and to sit and to focus on you. Father, I know that we are distracted. Uh, we've got presents to wrap. We've got food to, to cook. We've got trips to make. Uh, we've got all the family to deal with. And Father, we, we, we are, our minds are everywhere. Um, we're stressed. We're, we're anxious. And we're, we're thinking about other things. So Father, I pray right now. Um, just for these few minutes, that you would just kind of focus our minds and our hearts on you, um, that you would um, point us to this text, um, that you would, yeah, we would get these truths out of these texts that you desire us um, to get, and that we would, um, we would see Jesus Christ um, in these. Father, I pray that you would comfort us uh, and that you would encourage us um, through your Son. As in his name we pray, amen. All right, so, you know, you, you, most of you know the Christmas story, and we've obviously just kind of jumped right into the middle of it. Right, in Luke chapter 2, early on, Jesus is born. He's born in Bethlehem to, to Mary and Joseph. Uh, we just read the passage following that. Um, the angels show up to some random shepherds in Bethlehem. They, they proclaim to him them good news about this one that was born, this, this one that would be a savior. And they come and, and see the baby. And then right before our verses tonight, right, as was the custom according to the law, Mary and Joseph take Jesus down to Jerusalem, and they present him in the temple um, to God. Right? This was a normal practice that they would do for, for every firstborn child. 
And it was in the midst of this time at the temple when they would encounter this woman named Anna. Now, I think Anna is the perfect example of, of what we were just talking about. And I think there are some very important things that we can learn um, from the life of, of, of Anna. Luke says she was advanced in years. All right? If you've got the NIV, it just says she was very old. Right? We're, we're not told how old. I mean, she was either 84 or based on the translation. Some people think it, it was actually she was 104. Um, so either way, she was old. Right? We're told that she was only married for seven years and then her husband died. Right? So um, considering that, that young women married very early back then, often at the age of, of 13 or 14, it is probably the case that by the age of 20, right, she had lost her husband and she was now a widow. And now listen, it's difficult today to be a widow, but it was extremely difficult 2,000 years ago to be a widow. Right? That's why widows were one of the three classes of people that God over and over again says he has special care for. In Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 18, God says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. He executes justice for the fatherless, the orphans, and the widow, and loves the sojourner. Right? God loves these three classes of people because they were the most defenseless. They were the most susceptible to oppression and hardship and suffering. This is what Anna was already at the young age of 20. Now, she is a woman who had been a, would have been acquainted with, with much loss and much grief and much suffering. Right? A young wife losing her husband of just a few years in a culture where it was not good. It was dangerous even to be without a husband. Right? So, so don't just kind of gloss over Anna in that one verse. Don't miss the significant pain and, and uncertainty that this young woman would have experienced. Right? Enough um, pain and uncertainty that, that any of us um, have experienced in our lives. But look at what she does with that there in verse 37. It says, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And this is great. Right? There, there's, there's so much packed into this one little verse um, that I want to do with it. But, you know, I'm going to try not to keep you here all night on Christmas Eve. Menzi told me to, to, to go quickly. All right? I'm, I'm just kidding. I like to pick on Menzi. Um, but I'm going to have to just kind of hit a few things and, and summarize them for you. But what I want you to take note of tonight is the fact that this woman has lost the relationship that defined her and identified her and secured her and saved her in that culture. Right? A woman without her husband was lost 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. And then as a result, what she does is she, she turns and then she actually finds those things in the only relationship that could actually define, identify, secure, and save her. Right? Now how in the world does this relate to Christmas? Right? I'm getting there. That's, I'm working towards it. That's what I'm going to explain. Because it's noteworthy that Anna spent all of her time at the temple. All of this was happening. This kind of this second part of Luke chapter 2 happens at the temple. Because if you go back and, and read through the Old Testament, we've talked about this a couple times in Sunday school, the temple is one of the most important themes in the Old Testament and throughout the rest of Scripture. There, there are so many things coming together right here at this point in our passage, right? Important things that are easy to kind of just skip over and overlook. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about presence, right? Not 
E-N-T-S presents, right? E-N-C-E presents, right? You see the, the Christmas pun there, right? That's, you know, that's not, don't be impressed. I think every pastor at Christmas does that, um, so it's not intelligent. Um, but I want to talk about presents on Christmas. Not Christmas presents, not gifts, but, but presents, companionship, company, whatever you want to call it. Right, I want to talk about three things real briefly. I want to talk about the, the promise of presence, and then we're going to look quickly at the, the prophecy of presence, and then I want to look at the, the possibility of presence there. I'm learning from BJ. I'm working on my alliteration skills, um, but so I got all P's there for you. Um, but I want to talk first about the promise of presence, right? And this is related directly to the temple, right? But it doesn't start in the temple, right? Back in the very beginning, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, right? Genesis chapter 1 is about God, who is the king, and he is building and establishing and filling his kingdom, right? It's about his great control and power and might in creation. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, it's kind of talking about the same thing, but it's talking about it from a different perspective. It is focused more on the great presence of God, the king. What happens in Genesis chapter 2? Well, you see God specifically and meticulously prepare, prepare a special place for Adam. You see him come to and reveal his personal name, Yahweh, his relational, covenantal name to Adam. He, he gives Adam rules, rules that, that regulate uh, the relationship for Adam's benefit so that he will know how um, to, to, to thrive and to function in that relationship. We see him, him walking in the garden face to face with the man. The garden of Eden is all about the unmediated presence of God with his people. But Genesis 2 isn't only about God's presence with man, but it is about man's presence with man as well. It's about our presence with each other. Remember the first thing that God says is not good in Genesis 2. He says it is not good um, for the man to be alone. So he creates out of the man, he creates the woman, he creates Eve, a, a perfect match, a perfect complement, and he brings the two together. And then Adam just, he bursts out in poetry in a song. He says, at last, this is, is bone of my bone and, and flesh of my flesh. Um, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And the passage continues. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right, this was the, the creation, the institution of marriage. Right? But this passage isn't just about marriage. Right? This passage, marriage, is kind of the, the paradigm for all other relationships. We were specifically created and designed to need presence. God's presence and then our presence with each other as well. And Genesis chapter 2 closes with, with perfect vertical and perfect horizontal relationships, right? We have perfect unmediated presence between God and man and kind of a perfect unadulterated relationship between the man and the woman. But if you know the story right away there in Genesis chapter 3, it all falls apart, right? The man and the woman reject God. They reject the parameters of the relationship, right? And we, we talked about it on Sunday night. People kind of wonder, like, you know, why do you give them a tree? Why do you have to give them a rule? That just seems kind of mean. No, listen, inherent to, to any sort of relationship are, are some sort of kind of just rules that are built in, right? It is just inherent to the marriage relationship that, that I not cheat on my wife, right? That just kind of built into the understanding of, 
of what marriage is. She doesn't have to make a rule about that, right? That's just, it's just understood, right? And if you do those things, you, you break the relationship. And that's what happens in the garden. God says, I'm in a relationship with you. This is how this relationship works, right? And, and we, we reject that. We reject his rules. We reject the parameters that he sets. We reject God's presence, and then we see the man and the woman rejected from the presence of God. They have been cut off from the very thing that they were designed for. And then their relationship with each other was, was significantly affected as well. So, perfect presence, that presence is destroyed, a wall is put up, no more perfect presence between us and God. And then the rest of the Old Testament, then, is about God kind of beginning the process of restoring the relationship. By His grace and by His initiative, the Old Testament is about the, the promise of God's presence and that that promise is still attainable. And that's what the temple, where our, the setting of our story is happening, that's what the temple is all about. The temple represents the presence of God with His people. In Exodus 25, 8, God says to Moses, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Right? That was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the forerunner to the temple. Right? But they were, they were the same thing, basically. They both represented God's presence with his people. When they finished building the tabernacle, in Exodus um, 40, it says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then the exact same thing happens when they build the temple about 400 years later in 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that they could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory, the, the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God present with his people in the temple. So, the original garden, right, it was not special because it had all these pretty trees or it was just paradise and animals or running around and you can play with lions or whatever you like about the idea of the garden. The garden was significant and special because in it man had unmediated access to the presence of God. When we ruined that, God still makes provisions to be present among his people. That's what the Old Testament is about. That's what the temple represented. And that's why the temple was so important to the Jewish people. It represented God with his people. That's why the destruction of the temple 400 years later was so devastating to the people. Because that symbolized God's presence departing, leaving his people. But... What's interesting, remember we talked about this in Sunday school in Ezra a couple weeks ago. Remember they're, they're exiled, they're punished, they're out of the land. God brings them back in the book of Ezra and he has them rebuild the temple a few decades later. And what happens is when they rebuild the temple, it's interesting, there is no mention whatsoever of God's glory or presence or cloud or whatever it is that represents God filling the temple. And the people are distraught. They're distraught because the second temple was so far inferior to the first. They cry out, God, why? Why would we build a temple that just pales in comparison to the first one? 
And in, in these later Jewish writings called the Talmud, they're like commentaries on, on the Old Testament scriptures. They, they say that the second temple was inferior, not just because it was smaller and less impressive, but it was ultimately inferior because it did not hold the Ark of the Covenant and because it was not filled with the Shekinah glory, the, the cloud or the presence of God. God never took residence. His presence never filled that temple. But it is that temple that Anna is ministering in and basically living in about 400 years later. So all of that was just like, I just gave you like a biblical theology, an entire running through the Old Testament of the theme of, of the temple and the presence of God. But all of that was to say that from the very beginning, God desired to be present with his people. And when we rejected that presence, he then went to great lengths to continue to be present with his people, once we had messed it up. God knows that we were designed to be in relationship with him. Right? He designed us to require his presence to, to function and to thrive. Thus, it is, it is not good for us when we reject that presence. So he goes to the effort. He makes the initiative, takes the initiative to, to restore that relationship. Right? So that's the promise of the presence in the Old Testament. But I want to jump really quickly and look at the, the prophecy of the presence. Luke loves to do things in pairs. If you go kind of read through his book, he does a lot of parallel kind of stuff with characters. And parallel to our character, Anna, is, is the character Simeon that comes right before Anna. If you just look above the, the Anna story, you'll see the story about Simeon, who was a, a righteous man. It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel in verse 25. Now, consolation just means relief. It means comfort. And then back down in our passage, in verse 38, Anna, it says, is one of those who is waiting for the redemption of Israel. And redemption just means salvation or, or deliverance or rescue. Consolation and redemption. That's what they were waiting for. But the question is, why? Why were these two individuals, why was, why was this kind of small group of people waiting for these things? Because of God's prophecies. Because they had read and understood their Old Testaments. They were familiar with the very many prophecies about this one individual. This one that was going to come and console and redeem his people. But go back to the temple for just a second. Where, where we've been this whole time. An interesting thing happens. Right? There's this small little book at the end of your Old Testament called the, the Book of Haggai. Right? You can't even find it. It's impossible. It's on like one page. It's in there. Good luck. Just find it in the table of contents. But in Haggai, he was, he was the prophet who God used right at the time they were rebuilding the temple in Ezra. He sends him and God speaks to him to encourage the people and, and to get them to finish rebuilding this second temple. And he addresses the fact that we just discussed. Remember, the people are just, they're disappointed. In the outcome, they, they see the second temple and they're just bummed about it. It's, it's just so inferior in every way to the first temple. And he's addressing that fact, but then he basically says something that I think is just really doesn't make any sense on the surface. In Haggai 2, verse 9, God says through him, The latter glory of this house, right? He says, The glory of this temple that you guys just finished, this temple, the glory of it, shall be greater than the glory of the former temple. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. How? That doesn't make any sense. 
Because everyone knows that the second temple is nothing compared to the first temple. And it seems pretty clear that God never gave peace in that place, since Jerusalem today is still one of the most dangerous, highly contested places in the world. How could the second temple be greater, and how could there be peace in that place? But hold on, there's, there's, there's so much going on, there's so many different themes and prophecies coming together in this one little passage. All these types and hints and shadows that I want to kind of touch on, but we're going to have to skip most of them, and I'm going to do just two of them. Two of the classic Old Testament texts on Christmas. Right? Both of these are about God's presence, and both come from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah wrote about 200 years um, before kind of this rebuilding of the second temple. He talks about this unique one, this, this Messiah, this one that was going to come and rescue his people. This one that God was going to send to console and redeem Israel. The first one in Isaiah 9, 6 reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then two chapters earlier, in Isaiah 7, um, God says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's, remember, what the angel comes to, what we read when he comes to Joseph. Yes, when he, he applies that prophecy in Isaiah 7 about this one being Emmanuel, and he applies that to Jesus, right? Jesus, this baby born into poverty in this unimportant backwood town of Bethlehem, this baby, completely nondescript and unimpressive, he would be called these five amazing things. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean, right? We've been hammering this point. It means God with us. It just simply means, Emmanuel means God present with his people. Right? And it is right here that the riddle of Haggai 2.9 is solved. How could the glory of the second temple surpass the far grander first temple? Because while the first temple housed the ark and the cloud and these things that represented the presence of God, on this day in our passage in Luke chapter 2, 2,000 years ago, the temple, the second temple, would be graced by the actual physical presence and glory of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. How could God bring peace to this place that has known no peace? Because on this day, in Luke chapter 2, the very Prince of Peace, peace incarnate, peace in the flesh, would visit the temple. God had been promising for hundreds and thousands of years that one day he would be present with his people in a new way. And on this day in Luke chapter 2, Anna was seeing those prophecies all come to pass. And John, no one pays any attention to John at Christmas. It's, he doesn't get any love. Um, it's a little bit different than Mark and Luke. But I, his is my favorite. Right? In John 1.14, John says, And the Word, right? that's Jesus, the Word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. All right, That word dwelt among us is, is tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He was present with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image. He is the picture. He is the physical representation 
of the invisible God. Jesus Christ is God present with his people. God had been prophesying about this presence for 2,000 years. And then um, on that fateful morning, on that Christmas, that day that we are celebrating, it finally happened. And it is the fulfillment of that prophecy 2,000 years ago that makes possible that presence with us today. Tomorrow is not about Santa Claus or gifts or trees or music or food or family or all these good things that we should enjoy and celebrate. But tomorrow is about the incarnation. Tomorrow is about God himself breaking onto the scene and writing himself into the story. But he doesn't come just for the fun of it. Remember in Luke 2, the angels announce to the shepherds what has happened. They declare what? That a Savior has been born. And that's what we said on Sunday. Christmas is never the point. Easter is the point. Easter is the point of Christmas. Jesus has not come to just be with us. He has come to save us. And we can never be with him if he does not save us first. We are the ones who have rejected him. We are the ones who have ruined the relationship to the point that there is nothing that we can do about it. We cannot fix it. We cannot save ourselves. But thank God that he is not us because he does the one thing that could be done about our problem. And he does it in Jesus Christ. The Savior, God himself come to take on flesh, to become like us, but to still be God. And this is what we talked about on Sunday. Fully God and fully man. He had to be both of these things. As, as man, he had the right to represent us and to stand in our place. We owed a debt that we could never pay for our sin. And the gospel is that he has come to pay that debt for us. As a man, he can represent us, but only as God can he be infinitely valuable enough to pay that unimaginable debt that we all owe. The gospel is that God pays the debt for you. That's what the incarnation is about. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, come to, to rescue his people, to restore the relationship, and to bring his presence back with us. And that's what Anna gets to see in our passage. She had lost the presence of her husband. Right? Many of us in here have, have lost the presence of, of important people in our lives. But in her great agony, in her grief, she turned then and relied on the presence of God. And she was graced to see all of these prophecies fulfilled on that day, to see with her very eyes the very glory of God in the flesh, to see her, her Prince of Peace and her Savior come. And that is what I want to leave you with here tonight. Yes, listen, Christmas can be hard sometimes, right? But many of us have experienced pain and loss, and a lot of those things come to mind around this season. But if you know Christ... According to Paul, we can, we can describe all of those things, as terrible as they are, as light and momentary. Because Jesus Christ is our consolation and our redemption. Are you spending Christmas alone tomorrow? Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He is God with you. Are you hurting and confused? Jesus Christ is wonderful, counselor. 
Are you insecure and afraid? Jesus Christ is mighty God. Do you have a bad family situation? Do you have a terrible father? Have you lost your father? Jesus Christ is everlasting father. Are you killing yourself, trying to prove yourself or to give your life meaning or to fulfill yourself or to find your identity? Is there a war raging within you? Jesus Christ is Prince of Peace. He is all of those things and He is so much more. He is infinitely more than we would have ever imagined Him to be. But He is exactly what we need. And He is all that we need. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, then the promise of Hebrews 13.5 applies to you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That is the promise of God's presence always with us. That is what we celebrate tomorrow. The coming of the presence of God into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing um, worth celebrating more than that. The presence of God with us. And we all require that to, to thrive and to function. We were designed to run on the fuel of God's presence. And when we try to run on other things, it always eventually falls apart. So my prayer for all of us tomorrow is that no matter who you are with, uh, no matter if it's a great, wonderful, joyous day, or if it's a difficult day, I pray that every one of us would find our peace and our comfort and our joy and our rest and our identity only in Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, who is God always present with us. Right, let's, let's turn to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You. Um, for the possibility of presence with you um, through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us um, for our sin. Uh, we, we know that we are responsible um, for our separation from you. We know that we are all likewise sinners. But Father, we thank you for the good news of this season, that, that you acted, that you stepped into the picture, that you acted and decided to save your people. Father, we thank you for entering into the picture in the person of Jesus Christ, fully man and and fully God. Come to stand in our place. Come to take the punishment that we deserved and to give us the life um, that he deserved. Father, reconciliation with you, presence with you, relationship with you, freely given to us through Jesus Christ. Father, that truly is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And so we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that tonight and tomorrow as we get distracted by all the things that we have to get done. Father, I pray that our focus would always be on your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that everything that we do would be out of a heart of gratitude um, for His grace and His love and His mercy for us. So, Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.